Good morning. Uh, my name is Brandon. I have the wonderful privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Midtown. And before we dive into Exodus uh, 33 and 34, I just want to apologize and give a quick caveat. Uh, I am in about day 10 of what uh, my doctor says is the first fall virus. So congratulations to me. Uh, it's about three weeks to get through it. Um, it's a nasty upper respiratory infection. So I've been uh, hydrating and drinking medicine balls from Starbucks and trying everything I can to uh, just be here and, uh, and, and teach this morning. So uh, hopefully we'll get through it. Um, if, if I just start coughing uncontrollably, then we'll pray and, and go on to the rest of our service. So I'm um, hoping to make it to the end. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus 33, and uh, we'll do our best here. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a blue and white copy around you. I would love for you to use that as your own this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and they didn't put on their jewelry. But the Lord said to Moses, tell the, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. I went up with you for a sing- if I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. Now skip on down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked. For you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Please, let me see your glory. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, You cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, Here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. (coughs) Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Now let's skip on down to chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, 
maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Nick Nye, one of our friends uh, from Columbus, tiptoed into this section last week and taught in the Golden Calf, and I want to encourage you, if you missed it, to go back and listen to it again. But really, chapters 32 to 34 are meant to be preached as a literary unit. You're actually not supposed to separate them. We did. Uh, but they should be preached together, because there's one unifying theme in chapters 32 to 34. And what chapters 32 to 34 give us is a beautiful vision for renewal. Renewal, what it means to be made new again. Renewal is a fresh release of God's presence and his power and his promises among his people. It's a, it's a deeper awareness of rest. Notice God describes this state of his presence as a place of rest, which I would say is just a place of, of joy, a place, a place of love that delivers us from the despair and the futility of our idolatry. We just saw that in chapter 32. And it, and it brings us into the space of humble dependence on God for everything. Humble dependence on God for our identity, our sense of self. Grant talked about that. Our sense of meaning in the world. Without God's presence, there is no true meaning in the world. Um, our relationships. You see Moses talk about that a lot. And ultimately our destiny, right? Our eternal destiny. So understanding this passage, I think, is crucial to understanding what it means to flourish, what it means to be made new again. And so the question I want to look at this morning is, why do we need to experience renewal? Right? Like maybe you're here and you're like, I'm already a Christian. I've done that. I've been there and did that. I walked some aisle. I filled out some card. I prayed when I was a kid. I went through confirmation class. I was sprinkled, whatever. Like, why do we actually need renewal? Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you have all these questions about God. And you're wrestling through. And oftentimes God gets a bad rap in the Old Testament being a God of wrath. What we learn in this passage is what God is actually like is a God of grace. He's not at all the God that we oftentimes picture in our imagination. And so um, I want to talk just about how, why we need to experience renewal and how actually God brings renewal into our lives. That is the key theme here. It is the threat of losing God's presence, but also the promise of finding it again. And so uh, I see here a kind of a pattern that works itself out throughout the Old Testament, that works itself out throughout the Bible, that works itself out in our own experience. If you've lived maybe longer than 30 years or so, you'll kind of find this to be true uh, as you get older in life, that this is a, a pattern that repeats itself. And so I want to walk through this, and maybe this could provide just some markers for the journey that you find yourself on as you seek this wholeness, this renewal. Um, because all of us are seeking it, whether you're here and you're a Christian or not, we all want to be made whole. We all want to be made new again, right? And, and we oftentimes try to find that in the arms of a lover. We try to find that in the beauty of a sunset or a painting. Uh, we, we search for that in technology. We look for that in our jobs. We want to be made whole. We all have a happiness program that we're running, some script that we're pursuing to bring about this good life. And so I want to talk about what God offers for us here as human beings. The first thing that we see backing up before we get into renewal uh, is why we need renewal 
uh, is that uh, for all of us, we often find ourselves in places of decline. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage. Notice God several times here in chapter 33 calls Israel a stiff-necked people. They're they're narrowing their vision of of God and of themselves. He calls them a stiff-necked people. And it's interesting in this passage, for the very first time in chapters 32 to 34, Israel's sin comes to the forefront of the Exodus narrative. We had the sin of Pharaoh early on and the sin of Egypt. But this is the first time we see the sin of Israel kind of come to the forefront. And if you remember, we said this at the beginning that God didn't just need to deliver Israel out of Egypt. God also had to get Egypt out of them. And that's a lifelong process of ridding them of what it meant to live in bondage and slavery to sin. And we see that <clears throat> Israel uh, is, are both sufferers who need deliverance, and they're also sinners who need forgiveness, just like you. See, it's easy to find ourselves exclusively in one of those categories, either a sufferer and you're a victim of oppression and everybody's kind of trying to press you down. And that's not untrue. All of us experience oppression in different ways. All of us experience hurt and we suffer in different ways. For others of us, maybe you grew up in church just being taught that you're only a sinner and that your main problem in life is just your sin. So if anybody sinned against you, it's because you deserved it, you earned it. And we can kind of look at, look at ourselves through the lens of only sin and not see our suffering. The Bible says that we have both and we experience decline, right? Like part of uh, life is, is, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, right? Entropy. We experience this entropy in our lives. Things fall apart. And it's amazing how fast, to me, things fall apart in Exodus. Like just a couple of chapters earlier, we were reading about the miraculous intervention of God. We read about the plagues. And we read about the Red Sea parting and the manna that God provided. And the tabernacle was just promised a couple of chapters ago. Now Moses goes up on the mountain, going back to chapter 32, just for 40 days. I mean, this is just a little bit over a month to hear from God because the people were too afraid to go up to hear from God themselves. And in 40 days, the people get fearful. They freak out. I mean, how long does it take you to freak out? Maybe it's 40 minutes. I don't even, for most of it, it's not 40 days. Maybe it's 40 hours, right? Like just this sense of anxiety, this impatience. And in their anxiety and in their fear, they begin to wonder if God has forgotten about them. And so they task Aaron the priest with making them an idol of a golden calf. Now we can laugh about this story and think, you know, how primitive, right? How, how crazy that people would do that. But if you do that, you miss an important reality about yourself. And I miss something important about myself. We are just like the Israelites. Our decline is a reality. Our decline begins to show up in a pervasive sense of disappointment and anxiety, like you've had this experience with God, and maybe God spoke to you, had an encounter with God, maybe you were converted in a crazy way in college, or you came to know Jesus as a young adult. Some of you have come to know Jesus at this church, and you've had this profound experience and encounter with him, and you can remember what it was like to, to really feel a sense of God's nearness. When you were excited to go to church, when you were excited to sing, and you were excited to lift your hands in worship, You were excited to go to camp as a teenager, whatever that time was. But then this entropy begins to kick in, and you find yourself fading. And and you think it's this kind of ache, this gnawing restlessness inside of you. You think, if I just move to a new city, if I just get a new boyfriend or girlfriend, if I just get married, the ache will go away. If I just get this job, the ache will go away. But the reality is it just actually makes you more anxious, 
It makes you more fearful. You get more impatient, not less. And you begin to experience this pervasive sense of disappointment. Life just feels like a cloud is hanging over you, and nothing but disappointment and despair awaits you. I don't know if you've been in that place. That's what it's like to feel decline. When you're in the grip of idolatry, you begin to feel this sense of disappointment. James K. Smith, uh, in his new book, On the Road with Augustine, talks about the life of Augustine, uh, you know, kind of the pat- one of the patron saints of Christianity, you might say one of the early fathers and theologians of Christianity in the 5th century, 4th and 5th century. And uh, here's what he says about uh, uh, his experience with idolatry. He writes about this in his book, Confessions. If you're a person that's finding yourself in a place of decline, highly encourage you to read the, re- read the Confessions. They're super encouraging uh, because they're real. He talks about real life. And here's what he says about idolatry. Our idolatries are less like conscious decisions to believe in a falsehood and more like learned dispositions to hope in what will disappoint. Our idolatries are not intellectual. They are effective. Instances of disordered love and devotion. Existentially, the problem with idolatry is that it is an exercise in futility, a penchant that ends in profound dissatisfaction and unhappiness. Idolatry, might say, doesn't work which is why it creates restless hearts. We set our horizons on created things, and they never satisfy. We find ourselves in this cycle of moving from one thing to the next. He said, I love this sense of a learned disposition to hope in what will disappoint. That's when you know you're on the decline cycle. And this golden calf incident shows that all of us go there. All of us will find ourselves in this place, which shows how prone we are to wonder from God, to get bored with God, you ever just felt bored with God? Just like, I have this book and I don't even want to read it? I, I go to church and I don't feel a sense of God's nearness? I don't even know if I believe what I, what, I, what I say I believe? We get bored with God, we get restless with God, we get fearful. Is God going to show up? Is he going to leave me single forever? Is he going to leave me married forever? Is he going to come through financially for me when I need him to be there? We get so forgetful, right? Like God does this amazing thing for us like a week ago, and then today we're just like, where are you, God? We find ourselves kind of vacillating back and forth. And this is why we constantly need God's renewing presence to cleanse us, to make us whole, to heal us. Um, this, this decline can be likened to a fire. It's a great time here to make a fire pit. And my youngest is always amazed every time we go out and we make this fire, and we sit around and we make s'mores as a family in our you know, tenth of an acre backyard, if you want to call it a backyard. Really our driveway. Um, <laughs> marshmallows stuck to the ground everywhere after we're done on the asphalt. But uh, every, every morning my daughter comes to the window after we do a big fire and she looks out and she's like, Dad, the fire's gone. It's like, yeah, that happens. That's entropy at work, right? You, you build this great fire and it provides warmth. And then if you don't tend to the fire, it begins to cool, right? The properties of a fire are such that if it's not kept burning, if it's not given the right materials, and it's not tended to, it will eventually cool and go to ash. Uh, Another example, this may be like if you're the youngest kid in a family. Uh, When you're a young parent, we have four kids. I remember we had our first child. We cared about everything. We worried about every little sniffle, every little like thing, and we were so hawkish like about everything. By the time we had our fourth, we're just like, I think they'll live. I don't know, but it's going to be okay. You just don't care as much. Like, I feel for you. If you're a ch- youngest child in a, in a large family, I'm sorry, right? We just don't care as much. We're trying, but 
things deteriorate and, you know, things begin to break down and all these standards that you had for your first child, it's just like, man, I just hope they make it out alive by the time they're 18. You've resigned yourself. And here's the thing. If you don't expect decline to be normal, you're going to be constantly disappointed with the church. You're going to be constantly disappointed with other Christians. You're going to be constantly disappointed with God. I got an email this week from uh, one of our members who was just having a rough time and uh, just talking about their struggles, struggles with depression, struggles with sin. And this person said, I just, I feel like so alone in my struggles. I come to Soma and everybody's talking about all the great things they're pursuing, all the real estate deals they're doing, all the job success they're having. But I, I feel desperately alone because I feel like I'm struggling and I haven't found other people who seem to be struggling like me, or at least nobody that'll talk about it in a very honest way. That's a sad reality for the church. All of us should know what it's like to experience decline and to need God's renewing presence. We should be talking about that as a church. So decline leads the Israelites to this crisis, and that's the second place. Decline eventually ends in a crisis, a crisis of faith. And we see here in chapter 33, the first six verses, the crisis. God presents Israel a very interesting proposition. All of this decline, all of this deterioration leads to God presenting an alternative way of flourishing for them. He says, here's the deal. I will give you the promised land. I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey, which is just symbolic for basically everything you could ever want as a human being. I'll give you, he says, the best food and drinks. I'll give you wine, you know, bars. I'll give you gluten-free uh, food, non-GMO food, whatever. I'll give you the perfect setup, the best food and drink. I'll give you all the comfort you could ask for. I'll give you security. I'll give you wealth. And I will drive out all of your political enemies. Everyone will think like you and vote like you. Wouldn't that be amazing? But here's the deal. You don't get me. You don't get me. Would you take that deal? A lot of us like to think that we wouldn't. But here's the reality. Most of us wouldn't even know the difference if God's presence wasn't there because we often confuse the blessings of God for the presence of God. We confuse the blessings of God for the authentic presence of God. Like if you grow up in the Midwest, the equivalent to this would be like saying, hey, I'll get you into the right grad school program. I'll give you the ability to pass your boards, to have the perfect job in that startup with a huge opportunity to scale and get wealthy quickly, to live in the right neighborhood that's hip and urban without being too sketchy, to give you a good marriage or a family, or for many of us, maybe it's the opposite, no, no marriage. I'll let you be single for the rest of your life and enjoy it. I'll let you get, allow your kids to get into the right schools, and I'll give you a nice retirement nest egg. Religious people have our own version of this too. I'll, I'll give you a church where you can be moral with all the other good people. I'll, I'll allow you to be in a church where everybody has the right doctrine. You can be a part of an amazing church that has authentic community and they're serving the poor and they're making an impact and you can kind of post that on Instagram and let everybody know what kind of a church you're a part of. It's a dangerous seduction 
And I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. I'm not trying to shame you for wanting to live in a particular neighborhood and put your kids in a particular kind of school. What I'm saying is that's not the same thing as the presence of God. Don't confuse the blessings of God for the presence of God. Mark Sayers, in, uh, <coughs> is a cultural critic outside of the U.S., has a lot to say to us about where we find ourselves as the American church. He says the options of post-Christianity, this kind of moment that we live in, operate in the mode of what foreign affairs experts call soft power, an indirect yet powerful sort of influence. They don't bludgeon you out of your faith. We're no longer fighting the culture wars, he says. They don't bludgeon you out of your faith. They subtly coax you. Each option quietly proclaiming a kind of gospel in itself in which the good life can be yours. This soft power is lubricated by technology and the promise of consumerism. Through the mythologies of advertising and media and the internet and the instructive example of celebrity, a vast mental world is constructed daily in our minds painting the possibility of a godless utopia. A secular heaven on earth in which an individual life infused with pleasure, peace, and possibility is achievable this side of death. Therefore, the final checkmate of this secular's coup is is accomplished not by a frontal assault upon theology, but by a practical atheism that offers the fruit of shalom minus the tree of biblical faith that bore it. Is that not broaderful? Is that not oftentimes the church? Are we not guilty of that ourselves at times? Trying to offer the fruit of shalom without the one who brings shalom. You see, the true crisis of faith is not the culture wars. It's not a frontal assault on our theology, our doctrine. It is often more subtle than that. Satan is much craftier than that. It is often that we want the benefits of liberation without the presence of the liberator. We want to be free, but not free to to walk in communion with God, but just free to do whatever we want. And here's the reality. God will allow us oftentimes to go through crisis to reveal the futility of a good life without his presence. He will allow you to have everything you want so that you get to the place where you begin to realize this isn't actually what I wanted. I thought that this would do it, but it's not. And you may find yourself in that crisis where you've been pursuing with with just ruthless ambition the good life apart from God's presence. And maybe you've climbed that ladder to the top and you're in the upper echelon of your peers, but you're beginning to find out as every celebrity finds out that there's always another mountain to climb. There's always another way to redefine success. There's always somebody that has more than you do, and it's never, it's never enough. And here's what I want to pose to you, that this is actually an opportunity. That God in his mercy brings you to that place to expose the futility and to invite you to go deeper into his presence. As Augustine himself would say, seek what you seek, but not where you seek it. The ambition's not wrong, it's just for the wrong thing. You're allowing your fire to get lit by the wrong ambition. This opens up a space for renewal as we reach the end of our competency, the end of our capacity. So let me ask you this question before we go on to talk for the rest of the time about renewal. What do you really want when you say you want God? 
What do you really desire when you say you want God? Is it just God, really and truly, his presence, his face, a relationship with him, communion with him, or is it just his stuff? Is it just the land flowing with milk and honey? Do you truly want friendship with God or just a friendship with benefits? Does your vision of the good life include the glory and the presence of God? And if God wasn't there, how would you know? This, these kinds of questions are the questions that Moses is inviting us to ask. And Moses shows us the way forward. This crisis of faith for him and for the Israelites is an opportunity for renewal. And so it leads Moses then to a place of holy discontent. It leads, us, leads him to a place of holy discontent. You see, oftentimes renewal starts with one person. It starts with a small group of people where God stirs their hearts in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of failure, in the midst of futility and despair. It is from those ashes that God raises up a renewal movement. God starts with the hearts of a small group of leaders, and he says, don't be content with the status quo. Don't be content to chase what your peers are chasing. Seek what you seek, but not where you seek it. And here's the heart of his discontentment, I think, in this passage in, in verses 12 through 23. Moses is discontent with progress without presence. Progress without presence. You see, we all want progress. We all want to move forward. But Moses says, God, please don't move us forward. Progress is bankrupt unless it goes with the presence of God. There is no true progress without the presence of God, without a relationship with God. Moses is essentially saying it would be better to stay in the desert with the presence of God than to go to the promised land without him. Moses is saying, I don't want more of your stuff. I want more of you. See, this is the heart cry of a person that's reached a state of discontent. And I don't mean discontent in a bad way. I mean just dissatisfied with less than what God offers to us. The, the cry of a person in that state is, give me more, Lord. That, that should be the heart cry of every Christian, right? Give us more, Lord. We're not content to live on crumbs, to live in the promised land without your presence. Notice this. I love this verse. I mean, 15 to me, I mean, this could be a life verse. This could just be one of those verses that might be a, a life raft for you, a preserver in the midst of the storm. If your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. See, Moses says there is no progress without the presence of God. This idea of presence, the word here is, is the word penaim, and it just simply means the face of God. Moses is saying, God, I, I don't want to go anywhere without a relationship. The face is kind of the portal to the relationship, right? To look someone face-to-face, -to, -face, to have a face-to-face. -face. We still use that language, and we use it even more now because it's so weird uh, to even have face-to-face -face anymore because we do everything digitally. But can I have a face-to-face -face with you? Like, it implies relationship. Moses is asking for a deeper relationship. God, would you give me more of your presence? God, I want to commune with you. I want to know you and be known by you. And then he goes so far as to just ask this crazy thing, God, would you show me your glory? God, would you show me your glory? The word glory is the word kabod. Uh, it just means heavy or weighty or, or significance. What he's asking here is, God, would you become real to me? 
God, I want to experience more of the reality of who you are. I want you to become intellectually real to me. I want you to become like existentially in my heart real to me. I want you to speak in such a way that you are becoming the organizing reality of my life. You are the sun in my system. That's what he's asking for, centrality. God, I don't want you just to be out here on the periphery while I'm pursuing this life over here and you're kind of like my executive assistant who executes my plan. No, God, I want to surrender to you. I want to submit to you. I want you to be the organizing principle of my life. And again, man, this is such an important question for us to ask. We often, when we are approaching God about our life plan, we often ask the wrong question. And I hear this all the time in our community. We ask God, God, would you show me your will for my life? God, do you want me to take this job? Do you want me to get married to this person? Do you want me to be single? Do you want me to take this vacation? How many children do you want me to have? God, what is your will for my life? And Moses says, you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, show me your glory, not show me your will. If your presence doesn't go up with me, in other words, I don't want this job, no matter how much money it it pays me. If your presence doesn't go with me, I don't want this house, no matter how cool and like mid-century, whatever it is. God, if your presence doesn't go with me, I don't want this relationship. I'm not capable of enjoying it without you. I'll destroy it, or it'll destroy me. God, if you don't go up with us, I can't handle this degree, this ministry opportunity. But here's the converse is also true. If we experience his glory and his presence, we can handle anything with confidence and joy and peace. You hear what I'm saying? Like, you can handle infertility if you have the presence and the power and the promises of God. You can handle having 20 children if you have the power and the presences and the purpose of God. You can handle any job or any loss of job if you have the presence and the power and the glory and the face of God himself. You can survive and you can have confidence and joy and peace if you will begin to ask that question Not, God, show me your will, but show me your glory. Because, God, if you go with me, I can do anything, truly. So this discontentment leads him to cry out to God. And that's the fourth thing that we see here. It leads him to contending. It leads him to a place of contending in desperate prayer. Again, Sayers says this, and I think it's so germane. Eventually, holy discontent forms into a desire to pray, that can no longer be ignored. With the status quo no longer tolerated, the only way forward is to cry out to God for his intervention in the world. Prayer moves from being something desirable but rarely practiced in the Christian life to something indispensable and foundational. And we see Moses here speaking to God face to face as with a friend. We see Moses audaciously asking dangerous things of God. I mean, he's like almost inappropriate. Like if you read this prayer, it is borderline inappropriate. Like he's in a dialogue with God. Like you don't dialogue with God. Things go badly in the Bible for you if you dialogue with God. And yet God seems to here change his mind. He's going this direction. And because of the intervention of Moses, he goes this direction now. I've got my theological categories, and I know what I think about the mind of God changing. All I'm saying is read the story. 
God is going to wipe them out, and all of a sudden, he's not going to wipe them out. So whether you want to call that God changing his mind or God honoring the prayers of his people, there's a boldness here to come before God and say, God, would you let it be done this way in accordance with your, with your purposes, in accordance with your promises? Notice he's not saying, God, I just had an idea. You know, I was just kind of like spitballing the other day, got the whiteboard out, you know, which is like on this app and I had this cool idea. No, he appeals to the promises of God. God, for your name's sake, for your mercy, because of your compassion, your people. God, you promised to bring this people through. God, you've said that you know me and you know my name. God, would you hear my prayer and do this? There's begging, there's pleading, there's struggling, there's sacrificing. He says, blot my name out of the book of life if my people can go on with your presence. There's enduring, there's pushing back. That's what it means to contend with God in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, I don't pray like that a lot. I pray safe prayers. I don't often contend. Maybe for myself sometimes, not a whole lot for other people. But here's the deal. And programming, branding, workshops, lectures, technology, activism, these are all good things, but they are no substitute for desperately contending with God in prayer to see his glory and to experience renewal. Those things will not bring about change in the hearts of people. And I, and I was kind of thinking this week, just asking myself, like, how many times has God potentially withheld renewal from me, from us, from our world, because we didn't contend for it? Because we didn't pray for it. We didn't beg God for it, right? You know that the biggest revivals, the biggest renewals that are happening in the world right now are happening outside of the United States, like when you travel the world and you talk to the global church, you realize that now the U.S. is the mission field. You know that people are sending missionaries from all over the world, from India, from China, from Africa, from Europe. They are sending them here to the United States because this is the place that seems to have lost the presence of God. Contending. Desperate prayer. Which then finally leads to encounter. Leads to encounter. God answers Moses' prayer. He says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will. I will allow all my goodness to pass before you. But here's the thing. You cannot see my face and live. So I'm gonna show you my back parts, right? And he's using kind of like human language here. I'm gonna show you the backs. I'm gonna show you a small little glimpse of my glory because the fullness of my glory would kill you. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And so here's, here's just what I want you to see. The end of all of this is renewal right? God's greatest gift to us is his presence and his power, not his stuff, not the promised land. It is him. He is the great gift. And encountering him as he truly is, is the goal and the key to renewal. And I say as he really is, because oftentimes we settle for something less than God as he actually is. We often settle for what I'll just call projections rather than revelation. We settle for projections of our own imagination instead of encountering the real presence <coughs> of God. And here's how you know you've created God in your own image, is that you have a God who agrees with you on everything and rarely challenges you. He has all the same biases that you have. He holds all the same prejudices you have. God is a conservative like you're a conservative. He's a progressive like you're a progressive. 
He loves and is passionate about the same things that you love and are passionate about. He even votes like you. How convenient. He shares your views on sexuality and economic policy and all kinds of other things. I'll let Anne Lamont, I think she says it best. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. You see, revelation is something different. It's not me projecting onto God what I want God to be so that I can control and manage God. The kind of God we see in Revelation is a dangerous God. He's a contradictory God. He doesn't fit any of our boxes or categories or ideological platforms. The idea of Revelation is that God is a mystery. He is a mystery that needs to be revealed, that ought to produce in us a sense of awe and wonder and surprise because God's not like what we fashion him to be in our minds and with our hands. And this is what happens when we encounter God is that the presence of God becomes personal when, tr- when the truth of who God is catches fire in our hearts and it changes us. That's what it means to encounter God. Things that are just abstract truths about God get into our hearts and begin to melt us. They begin to transform us. They shock us, like awake, and then all of a sudden we are encountering the reality of God. And this is what God does to Moses here is he reveals his name. Like what Moses needs most in the midst of this uncertainty and futility is to hear the name of God proclaimed and then felt in his bones such that at the end of this, he gets down on his knees and he worships and then when he gets up from speaking with God, he's literally radiating. He is on fire. I was watching Hunger Games. He is man on fire. Like last night, I was watching this. He is the man on fire after he meets with God. You see, the significance of a name in ancient Near Eastern culture is that a name reveals your identity. It reveals your destiny. It reveals (coughs) your character and your essence. God is saying, Moses, I'm going to show you what I'm like. I'm going to show you the essence of who I am and who I've called you to become like. Notice that all these attributes here are not just like, you know, theoretical, like theological words. They're relational words. They're ways that God relates to his people. He doesn't say, Moses, look at me. I'm omnipowerful. Moses, look at me. I, I, I do. No, he says, look at me. This is who I am and the way that I relate to you. I mean, it, this, this self-disclosure of God is central to the Bible. This might be the most quoted passage of Scripture by the authors of the Bible. Matter of fact, in the Jewish culture, they called it the Midot, M-I-D-D-O-T, the Midot. Uh, They called them the 13 attributes of mercy. They would pray these every day as a confession. They would pray them on holy days like Yom Kippur. They would pray them in their public prayers in the synagogue. This is so defining to the community that it became really one of the organizing principles of Jewish life. And so what we see here is the heart of this contradiction. A merciful and compassionate God. The, The word compassion is the word, the root word is womb. God, God holds us together like a mother in, his, in her womb. That's the kind of tenderness and care that God has. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abundant with steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives inequity and rebellion and sin. But he also doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He doesn't clear and declare the guilty to be innocent. We see this contradiction of a God of love and grace and mercy and a God of justice. 
He's a God of grace, willing to forgive to thousands of generations, but also not clearing the guilty and the consequences of sin going multiple generations, even down to children and grandchildren, although each one is accountable for their own sin. But God says the consequences of that sin will play out multiple generations, and any of us who grew up in broken families certainly know that to be the case. I don't have to explain that to you. And aren't you glad that we serve a God? We can encounter a God who will deal with that. Who doesn't just wink at sin. Who doesn't just say, ah, no big deal. That trauma that you experienced, you know, like people are people. No, God says, I'm a God of justice. I will punish wrongdoing. But I'm also a God of mercy. And I'm a God of grace. And I'm a God who lifts the burdens of the oppression of sin. And, and so we have this contradiction, and I'll close with this, this contradiction <coughs> of what it means to encounter God's glory, the God of grace and the God of justice. And all these contradictions are brought together perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, Jesus brings the glory of God near. And now we get to see not just the backside of God's glory, we get to encounter God's face the very face of God, Hebrews says, Jesus radiates the glory of God. He is the perfect imprint of the nature and character and the heart of God. And he brings close both God's compassion and God's justice. And he bears, instead of punishing us, he bears the justice of God so that we can experience the face of God. That is what Jesus is doing in his life and his death and his resurrection. And that is the key to renewal for us to encounter the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the goal of your life. It is what you were created for. The Apostle Paul, and I don't have to guess at this, the Apostle Paul uses this as a paradigm in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, writing to a community experiencing a crisis due to temptation and affliction and suffering and sin. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes quoting this very passage in Exodus. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face with a relationship with Jesus Christ. So here he says, don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. Don't get depressed. Don't give up. Don't become so disillusioned that you allow yourself to walk away. It's normal to lose heart, Paul says, but don't allow it to overcome you, to overwhelm you, to act as if this is something abnormal. This is very normal. Don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the invitation from God. Have your inner man renewed. Have your inner self renewed. Have the core of your being renewed by encountering the glory and the presence 
of God. He says, behold the glory of God. Look at Jesus. Behold his wonder and his majesty and his goodness and his compassion and his justice. Meditate on that. Allow that to wash over you in daily prayer. Allow that to wash over you every single day and you will be transformed. Now notice, from one degree of glory to the next. It doesn't all happen at one time. It happens in degrees. But you will be transformed. So let's just bow our heads here for a moment as we come to communion. And I just want to ask that question I asked you earlier. What do you really want when you say that you want God? Do you want his presence and his power to fill your life? then by all means, cry out for it. Cry out, God, show me your glory. Right now, God, show me your presence. God, show me your face. God, show me your glory. Don't settle for weak desires with God. Allow the discontentment and dissatisfaction and the futility to drive you to God, to ask God to come and to meet you, to bring his presence right here and right now into your life once again and to begin the process of healing you and making you whole. That prayer God will always answer. So we're going to go to communion. And before I pray for us, I just want you to examine yourself and I want you to see and to test yourself and to locate yourself in this pattern that we see. Are you in a place of decline? Are you in a place of discontent? Are you in a place of contending? Maybe you're in a place where the presence of God is real to you and you just want to take some time to thank God and praise him that he's showing himself to you. Praise God, okay? I don't want to assume that we just always glory in the bad. Sometimes it's really good and we just need to take time to thank God. Wherever you find yourself, I just want you to lift that up to God. And then as we, t- as we come to communion, maybe that'll fuel a sense of engagement, right? Like the body of Jesus broken for me. The presence of God come near. The blood of Jesus cleansing me from all of my sin and unrighteousness and idolatry. And let's just grab onto this like a life preserver. Because it is our life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to stay in your seat as others come. If you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to pray for us. We'll have stations at the front, stations in the back. You can come and take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it into the cup and return to your seat. Father, show us your glory. Father, thank you that through Jesus we can be called your friends. God, this is the great imitation of our lives (coughs) to experience your power and your presence. And God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. God, you've made your presence available to us in Jesus, and so God, help us to grab hold of that, to behold you, to seek you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, to be found in you, God, to be found and to be, uh, God, just to experience a revelation of your name to us again. We need to hear your name. We need to hear your truth. We need to experience the thickness and the fullness of your presence if we're gonna live. Because God, we are fragile. We are weak. We are vulnerable. We are anxious. We are depressed. We are despairing. We do not have what it takes to make it through this week. So God, would you strengthen us once again and remind us that you are with us and for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.